Let us not be ashamed to speak what we shame not to think. Michel de Montaigne In a realm abound with fragility and fabrication, truth is forced underground. We must, as sentinels do, provide sanctuary to the marketplace of ideas. And so, let us prepare to proclaim boldly and contend forthrightly before the court. This is Candor and Counter. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Counter. Last episode, we talked about after death in Candor. About what happens after death. What happens after death. Yeah. After you die, what's going to happen? So, I know that we shared a lot of sources about maybe the different cultural beliefs that you have. And whether it be like Muslim beliefs or Hindi reincarnation beliefs or... Every religion in the world, to be honest. I'm going to be straight up, guys. I went down one hole. (laughs) Okay, so the whole point of Candor Encounter for me is to examine the way we believe and why we believe it. This hole that I fell into happened near the end of the week, sort of. Did you fall into it or did you dig it? (laughs) Oh, I definitely dug (laughs) it. I definitely shoveled my entire way down into it. (laughs) But it happened closer to the end of the week, closer to now. You know, typically I like to spread out and I like to so examine all the different facets of what could happen after you die. Like big picture right. kind of thing. But <clears throat> part of Candor Encounter is to disprove like what you believe, the opposite of what you believe. And I posited the existence of heaven and hell. As a Christian believer, that's a pretty standard practice. And so I I don't want to try to take over this conversation, but I'm going to tell you that as I started digging, (laughs) so I'm going to start from the very beginning here. All right. And I had a thought as we were editing the last episode or the last episodes that I just naturally have a tendency to dominate a conversation and try to keep things moving as if we're like on air, you know, as if we can't have any dead space. But what you guys don't know is we edit out all kinds of dead space and that just naturally happens. <laughs> and you never get to hear that silence. But because of that, I tend to Lead pick up and, and keep the ball yeah. rolling. And that tends to steamroll people sometimes. And so our goal here at Canter Encounter is to be completely open. And I think that I would, I had a personal goal that I was going to relax some and let the other guys speak and make sure there's enough room in here for everybody because I think that's a fair conversation and then I discovered all of this stuff and I realized I'm going to have trouble (laughs) talking a lot now mostly because this has to deal with theological perspectives that means that this is not obviously a bash against you guys we all have different ways that we went through life and <clears throat> I've always been an interested in theological study since I started, uh, since I became a Christian, because 
I feel like it's part of a logical mindset as a Christian to understand what's in front of you and not just ideologically believe it. Just accept it for what it is. Yeah, that doesn't. that's not me. Okay. So, like, if you want me in your club and you don't want me asking questions, don't let me in your yeah. club. <laughs> okay. Like, straight up, it doesn't matter how much authority you have. I'm going to respect you for sure. And I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to give you the credit of intelligence. But I'm definitely going to question you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, we grew up Catholic. I went to a Catholic school for nine years. And as I got older and I started to ask questions and found resistance in certain places, I decided, yep, I'm asking more questions. That just (laughs) something flipped inside of me. And I said, authority deserves to be questioned. And if it can't stand up to question or it doesn't allow question, it's not my authority. Like, it's not an authority that I respect. So, anyway, y'all feel free to chime in anytime you want. Right. Ask questions anytime you want. I'm looking but forward to this. That's normally what I try to do in conversations anyway, is listen and understand before trying to reply. Like, listening to understand instead of listening just to form a response. That's a really healthy way to learn because I have had hard lessons in speaking first and asking questions later, right? Because sometimes it's too late. Like sometimes you already have to put your foot in your mouth because you learn better later. Exactly. Now there is a flip side to that. You can sit by on the sidelines so long that you never speak up and you never be part of anything. So there is a balance that's to be created and there is a, uncomfortability an anxiety in me that comes with I don't, I'm not a confrontational person I like to be likable I think that's pretty normal for a lot of people but the the questions come with that yeah. that, that con- not confrontational nature but truth is too important to me it's paramount yeah exactly and before comfort. And so I'm going to make myself uncomfortable today. A lot of people don't know a lot of our personal background. And that's okay. They're going to get to know us as we go on. And as you know from our last episode, I am a Christian. but Or from any of our other episodes, I, am, I do have Christian beliefs. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out how to start it off. But because I want you to understand how I view decisions. I am the spiritual leader of our household. And so the decisions that I make and the understanding and the wisdom that I have to gain from them are important. And the reason I say that is, is because I direct the worship and the spiritual education of my children. Our day-to-day life is governed by our interactions with our church. None of these are lightweight decisions for me because the, and they shouldn't be, They shouldn't be lightweight decisions because they are too young to understand for themselves. So I can't be whimsical about my beliefs. I can't be complacent about them. Not only is my eternity important to me, but their eternity is important to me. Yeah. 
And my wife recognizes me as the spiritual leader in the household. She recognizes me as the leader, period. But especially in the form of our worship and practiced religion and all of that. And so she trusts me with those responsibilities. And I value her and her opinion, as it should be. But in the end, where I stand matters. And I feel that weight with all of the spiritual decisions that we make. I am a um, deacon in a church, a local church. And what I say matters to me because of who I represent. I have been interested in theological study for a while, for a long time. There are different terms that I'm going to use that I'm going to explain to you and what they mean and why we use them. I have always been a logical person. I'm really enthralled by arguments and debate. And I listen to debates all the time yeah. and arguments. And really what started the ball rolling is what you would probably imagine. And that's the basis of the Bible, which is the beginning. Genesis, the creation of the world. And all of that is going to tie into this in the end. But this is where the story starts. And my interaction with the Christian faith started with creation. I was like, I have to understand this. I got to know, I got to know what we believe and why we believe it. I got to know what we think about Genesis and I got to know why we think it. And I got to be able to defend it. Now, if you carry that process through the whole Bible, being able to understand it, defend it, talk about it, discuss it, that is called apologetics. Okay. So that's a term that we use okay. to describe being able to present evidence or logical reasoning and talk about why th what this passage means and why it means that. The ability to do that is called apologetics, the argument for your faith. Gotcha. Okay? That started the ball rolling because, of course, the world presents evolution and, yeah. and it denounces... Uh, there is a big clash between Christianity, creationism, and evolution. And getting to the bottom of that is a, it's a bottomless pit, okay? I've been down it. <laughs> right. And we will go down it again. Well, I'm sure we will. Okay? But that is what led me into saying, okay, what, how does my faith clash with reality? And how can I reconcile that? Because I have a theory of continuity of thought. So the continuity of thought is basically, I can't have internal disagreement. That does not live within me. I can't believe two contradictory things. And so continuity of thought is I have elements of reality around me that I believe, right? And I have elements of my religion that I believe. And they either have to come into agreement or one of them has to go. So I had to rectify the logical problems that I had in my mind with the worldly arguments that were being placed against it. And, I ha and that is a long, methodical process because the Bible is a big book. And there is every element of humanity portrayed within it. Okay, so when it comes to understanding the Bible, there are different ways to understand it. And this is part of another reason it's a bottomless pit. There's another term called exegesis. Not Jesus like the Jesus. Like G-E-S-I-S. G-E-S-I-S. Yeah. Exegesis. All right, anyway, this term means 
going to the root of the original term. So you see it in English, right, as Lord. Well, it was translated from Hebrew as Yahweh. And so what that means is finding the direct translation. Okay. Okay, that means not accepting what happened between now what you read and what the original text was, right? That in itself is a complicated process. Yeah. Because now you have this big book that you have all these terms that you have to learn to understand. If you listen to our last counter episode, I mentioned the sacred text of the Tao. I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a long process. Yes. And a lot of, it's actually pretty common now. You have like preachers that go around and using phrases that are in the common Bible. And they misuse terms that are mistranslated. And to me, that's essential. Because my faith revolves around, I believe, major tenets of Christianity. I believe that God created the world, and we were all born with sin. Jesus Christ died for that sin to pave the way and pay the price for us, okay? Outside of that, I be- oh, I'm sorry, the Bible, can't forget, is the inerrant word of God. Inerrant, can't be wrong, it is perfect scripture. That being said, that means I have to pay very close attention to what God was saying. And if I'm paying very close attention to what God was saying, and I'm using my earthly logical mind, I'm going to reason back to the original intent. Fair enough? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is all part of this continuity of thought because I can't have disagreement. And so if worldly people are saying things that this Bible says that means this, I have to know it. And if I have to know it in that many pages of scripture, it's difficult. Okay. And it is not a quick process. There are people with college theological seminary degrees that study this for years and years to try to get to the root of some of these issues. Okay. Another term. Hermeneutics is the cultural and literary understanding of what was said. So meaning when an ancient Hebrew said this, what did it mean? You have to have context in understanding what you're saying. And, <clears throat> oh, and this also involves historical context, literary right. context. There, there's a reason, like, bad Google Translates exist, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't r- just run something through Google Translate. A basically. direct word-for-word yeah. translation doesn't always carry yeah. what were the Jews going through. Yeah. What was the view of an Israelite at the time? All of that matters because understanding what they were trying to say can be totally misconstrued to mean whatever you want it to say. Whenever you take scripture out of context and you place it to mean something outside of its context, when you misuse scripture, that's called eisegesis. Okay? So hermeneutics is the study of literary, historical, and cultural context. Exegesis is the direct translation from the original text, whether it be Hebrew or Greek. The Bible is written in multiple languages, in its original form. The New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so as far back as you can go to the original documents, getting the direct word translation, that's exegesis. Okay. I say all of that to lead into this next point. I think of myself as competent. I I wasn't going to say, I'm not going to say skilled or scholarly about the Bible or anything. Okay, 
I considered myself competent at an average level as far as a Christian who cares about original intent in the Bible. <clears throat> All right. So then I started to look about the biblical versions of heaven and hell because I had posited that my belief was the existence of heaven and hell. Now, my intent was to just quickly go over this so that I could have some scriptural background on what we believe and why we believe it. And then I was going to move on, leave that behind, and I was going to go on and study a lot more on <clears throat> reincarnation. But I didn't get much deeper <laughs> in the other topics because I ended up in a whole world of... Christian heaven and hell. Now, I didn't realize there was this much disagreement about heaven and hell. Mm. It was one of those things where you take for granted that they're just universally accepted ideas. You feel like everybody believes it. Yeah. And I never really gave it a lot of thought and you hear preaching on it and the words are there. And so you just don't think much about it. Nobody goes into specifics or anything. I've heard preachings on the specifics and now that I think about it, I've heard different perspectives and I just didn't realize it. But I shared a couple of articles and if I haven't shared all of them, I'm going to go back through. So how would you, I'm going to ask you guys perspective. There's no wrong answer because yeah, God knows I was even in the wrong place here. <laughs> So what would you describe as, we're going to start with hell, because <clears throat> it's going to be the biggest topic here. But first of all, let me ask, do you think I set up this properly to explain why, when I found contradictions, why I had to keep going? Yeah. Okay. So this is why when I started digging the hole. Well, well so I think like in any discussion, that should be the case. I agree. It's it even not even in like religious context. If there are contradictions among people who accept the same thing, I think there should be a discussion about it. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's talk about what you guys, what was your perspective on hell before I spoke last week? I hadn't really thought about the concept much. Deeply at least. Like whenever I would always think of it as a concept. As opposed to what I think it's... So like an abstract idea? Yeah. I, I, I never really tried to understand it, I guess I could say. Fair enough. But as I would envision it, not visually, but just a place... I don't even know if a place is the right word, but eternal nothingness. I, I would recognize that it wouldn't necessarily be like fiery pits and torture. I recognized it couldn't or necessarily wouldn't be that, but that's about as far as it went. It was like not necessarily eternal suffering, but yeah. I think my idea was very similar. It had more along the lines of like visual cues, but uh, large, largely the same, like vast barren wastes, like yeah. salt lands. Yeah, I would still... I wouldn't dismiss the idea of eternal suffering or the fiery pits because I it's just up in the air to me because I don't know. 
Sure. Yeah, so we talked last week about how the world has caricatured Satan and the fiery pits of hell and all of those things. So, And you know, and I'd heard fire and brimstone preaching in my life. It's not like I didn't think that there were contradictory ideas out there. But I'd formed a sort of semi-solid understanding that I, I felt comfortable not digging into yet because I was worried about all of this like worldly creation and Hell has a lot to do with the book of Revelation, which I don't right. know if you guys know anything about the book of Revelation, but it's the only prophetic book in the Bible. What, is, what does that mean exactly? It speaks of the future. Oh, pro- okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's the one that has to do a lot, a lot more with your interpretation, right? You can't, it's not a historical yeah. document in any way. And so there is a lot more nuance to the way it can be read, and it has a lot of the fiery language and like on the heaven side of it has the like pearly gate type scripture in it and golden roads and all of that kind of thing so it has the more abstract sounding writing and that goes also into the types of books that are in the bible they're known to be different types of literary genres inside the bible itself and so there are like allegorical writings right. that are some people consider more story-like. And then there are historical writings and there are psalms, which are more like worship, prayer, stanzas type writings. And then there are the New Testament gospels, which are supposed to be recordings of Jesus's life. And then there are prophetic Bibles. There's a lot of different, I'm just like highlighting the big ones here. And so when you're reading certain books of the Bible, it's important to remember what you're reading, right? And I wanted to also, you know, in the beginning when I started this narrow down, like what, to what degree is something allegorical? Does it, is it literary fact? What happens if I believe that Adam and Eve is just a representation of mankind and not specifically two men, uh, you know, a man and a woman or yeah. like I needed to really get to the bottom of those issues. Anyway, so what, what that leads me into today is about hell. And I asked you guys about what your opinion on hell was. And it's always sort of abstract in everyone's mind because it's, it's not any place anyone is, any one of us will ever visit. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know how that came out wrong. Yeah. Any one of us will ever visit and report back on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So we covered that in the other episode. Let's talk a little bit about the exegesis and the hermeneutics behind hell. So we're going to dig into a little bit about Hebrew, and we're going to dig into a little bit about Greek in the hell in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And those, you have to find agreement between them right because we find we look at the scripture as a whole if have you ever seen the diagram about the it's a bible hyperlink map where each scripture references other scriptures and have you ever seen seen that that? well imagine a rainbow right above a timeline of the bible and all the different verses of the bible right Mm -hmm. the hyperlinks you'd imagine one connects one verse in the new testament connects to this other verse in the old testament And this verse in the New Testament connects into another book, and they reference each other. They use similar phrases that mean specific things, and you have to get context from all of that. Okay, Mm. You know how many hyperlinks are in the hyperlink text of the Bible? All of them. (laughs) 
65,000. Yeah, I can't imagine. The Bible self-references itself itself 65,000 times, I believe. I may have that term wrong. I saw it in a video or something, so I may have got that term wrong, but it's a it's a the it's number still a ridiculous amount. is enormous. I mean, if, even if it was 20,000, 30,000 times, it'd still be All right. So hell is a belief that Christians have where we it's a place that we avoid. Some people would like to forget that it exists. Some people choose to follow God in fear of it. Some people look of it as a sort of, well, I won't go because I believe like that. Some people just don't really give it a lot of thought. And I think I could probably consider myself one of those people because I wasn't led to God through fear of hell. Now, some people are. I was laying in bed last night, like, how should I lay this out concretely? And I want to make it clear. I'm going to go ahead and make it clear from right now. I don't have an answer. Now, what I mean by that is there are theological perspectives that are, like I said earlier, studied by people that specialize in this stuff. Some of the terms that we're going to end up in are circular. So meaning like you can have logical beliefs on both sides and you just have to pick one. Okay. And when you pick one, you need to be fair and acknowledge that the people that believe the other way have a fair logical argument. Okay. All right. So let's get in. So we know that Christians believe hell is a place for sinners. We know that hell is believed to be a place for Satan, for his fallen angels. I don't know if you guys are familiar with fallen angels, but anyway, not a big part of this topic, but anyone who is out of God's favor, who doesn't believe non-believers sinners false prophets there are a number of ways right any unrighteous any unclean can't spend it we went through that yeah and that's not an unbiblical concept that is fully consistent with the bible in every way as far as i can tell but only the righteous and clean unstained can be in god's presence okay so none of that was technically wrong but when we get into hell and what it means to go to hell. I said, I simplified it last week. Now we were short on time and I did have a deeper understanding than just a separation from God, but I laid it out in a way that would be, and maybe this isn't a good thing as a Christian, but didn't require a lot of scriptural background. I was just talking about the idea. Right. Yeah. And so as we get into hell a little deeper here, we're going to probably read some scripture. It's important to note that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the terms for hell changed. So <clears throat> the New Testament is written in Greek, like I said. And so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so they have to reconcile the ideas between the Hebrew words for hell and the Greek words for hell. So that presents a little bit of a problem because context between those two cultures are vastly different. Mm. Context between those two, the way they recount history, the way they recount events, the way they talk about places, all of that is different. And so it has to be carefully interpreted. All right. So the New Testament version of hell, the way that it's talked about in the New Testament is much more striking and violent 
I didn't mean in the last episode to fully discount the idea that scripture talks about any physical suffering that could happen in hell. Okay. I only meant that it can be mischaracterized easily. So I know I probably sound, if you listen to the first episode, which I have done, you'll probably hear a little bit of backtracking because what I'm, I oversimplified it. And so there is a biblical representation of fires and they use gnashing of teeth and lots of violent visceral yeah suffering not just a separation but the separation is noted and real but the new testament teaching about hell is meant to strike horror it's meant to be it's going to be worse than you think and in the old testament hell is the word the and i'm probably going to slaughter words okay <laughs> and you can look these up and and see these in the articles that i share and that kind of thing but the Old Testament hell is not really, it's not called hell. Hell is a modern term. Mm. Okay. Hell is the translated term that we use. It's in the modern Bibles. It wasn't, that's not what the Greeks called it. In fact, if you go and look at the original Greek, a lot of times they call it Hades in the Bible. Really? Yes. So now that is an underworld term as most of you probably know. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a minute, but let's go back to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament term is Sheol. Sheol. Okay. Sheol. And the word is used in reference to the afterlife. And it usually means a dwelling place place of people after death. And it's not just the wicked in the Old Testament that end up in Sheol. So that makes a confusing, contradictory point. That was one of the first holes that I went down. <laughs> Okay, because if you can have bad people, let's just simplify it really quick. If you can have bad people in Sheol and good people in Sheol, wait a minute. Are we talking about hell? Right, right. Right. All right. So it's not just for the wicked. And in a lot of Jewish writings at the beginning of the or between the close of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, these are not scriptural writings because in between the Old and New Testament, anything that isn't that is Jewish writings, but it's not in the Bible. It's not considered Holy Scripture. Okay. So Luke 16, 19 through 31. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg of you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So, if you got the gist of that story, so the account for the accounting for a separate place for the wicked and the righteous is a distinction that's made later on in the New Testament in Sheol. Abraham, who you heard referenced here, is an Old Testament figure. He's already gone. Okay? Lazarus dies, goes down into a place, a place where Abraham is. Okay? Abraham can communicate with or Abraham is with Lazarus and can communicate with the rich man who is down there, but in a different place. It's like separate, but together. Right. So this view is supported in that view of Lazarus's story. So understanding what this means for the wicked is where do you draw that line? Where's this distinction, right? Because the current view, the popular view of hell is this one place, this one eternal place where, where, where all the sinners go to suffer, but you're alone and you're separated. And he yeah. says the chasm, there's a chasm there. So it's an unreachable place, even if you're there together. And so that's just a little bit there. So we're going to move on a little bit farther and we're going to bring some of this all back together in a bit. We're going to go over a couple of different scriptures and then try to figure out what's going on. In Job, I'm not going to pull it up. i got the scripture here on my computer. It says in Job 10, 21, Job is suffering. Job is a book about a man who is in deep suffering. He's like his wife has died, his children have died, and like he's sick and the devil is killing his cattle and like Satan is trying to make him turn from God. That's his goal, like to make him suffer enough in life to make him turn away from God. Mm -hmm. And in that book, Job chapter 10, verse 21 through 22 states that the land of darkness, or that it is the place, the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom, like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order and where light is as thick as darkness. But in Psalms, which are more of a sort of worship style, a lyrical book. Psalm states, this is Psalms 88, states, The regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. And so in Job and Psalms, the description of Sheol is like the place is deep, covered in darkness, chaos, a prison, the God's wrath, where a place where God's wrath is experienced. See, I didn't talk a lot about God's wrath last time. And God's wrath is a little more complicated. It's, I shouldn't say that. God's wrath is sometimes left out because people don't want to think of God as punishing. Yeah. God isn't just a total God of love. He's also a total God of justice. Right? So there has to be a reconciliation for the sins. If we're all sinners and we all know that we have darkness within us, and 
that in in a god in a world that god created in the beginning to be good we destroyed because we can't help but fight each other and kill each other and do all those things right, right. and lie and steal and have impure thoughts and all of those things constitute sin and with us constantly violating that law uh, a reconciliation has to happen and that reconciliation did happen and so that can be washed away and so that still has to be reconciled that sin the unwashed sin and just like a crime can't go unpunished the judge isn't an evil person for sending someone to right. prison right it doesn't mean they're evil to exact a punishment that is deserved. And so, anyway, that's the perspective of pure justice as well. All right, so God's wrath is experienced in this place, Sheol. Just to clarify, we're... Sheol and hell are being posed as two different places, or are we trying to find out? If yeah, that's our goal right now. Yeah, so our goal is to go forward ignoring the modern term hell, okay? Let's view this life after death We're, in the Old Testament. Let's just say that. Right. Life after death in the Old Testament, life after death in the New Testament. Let's examine the words and the cultural context behind each of those situations and see if those come together as a continuous version of the same thing and are they the modern view of what I believe? Make sense? Yeah. Were okay, the yeah. book of uh, Job and the story of Lazarus, were they written by the same person? No. Were those in between the New Testament and Old jo Testament? Yeah, so the Lazarus story is in Luke, which is a gospel. So that's a modern, not modern, I'm sorry, a New Testament book and Job is an Old Testament book. Okay. So they okay. are more than I don't have, they there are pretty well known dates for the writings that none of them are usually exact, but there are pretty well known understandings about when each gospel and when each book was written in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For the most part, some of the earlier books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the oldest ones, mm. they're really they don't even know who wrote them really. <laughs> Because they're so old. And anyway, but... I only brought it up because it's curious. Uh, it's very possible humans just experience hell in different ways. Yeah, where where a, one sees a chasm, the other sees bars. Yeah, so like... Imper, impassable... What? Oh, this is just on the tip of my tongue. There's a, um, a perspective on... Well, I guess the simplest way to say it is your own personal hell. If you're go if the goal is to suffer to the fullest, what's worse? It's super for easy you. for an eternal being to like just tailor that for you. Yeah, right. But it was just curious to me because if there are two different people writing the books and they see hell in different ways, it would make perfect sense if yeah. like they but, they see this impassable wall in different ways. But it makes it tough when you're trying to make a continuous yeah. form of yeah. belief. Like when you want continuity in your thought and your belief. It's yeah, like, I see where it's coming really in now. Yeah. But I understand what you mean. I, I definitely understand what you mean. But there is a lot of discussion in the uh, theological community about, um, you know, writers and their perspectives and, and that kind of thing. Okay, so 
the description in the Old Testament is generally a place of suffering for the wicked, but sometimes they talk about the just general place for the dead. Right. It's not specifically a modern version of hell. Okay. Some people believe that this is just a place where you go and you you don't leave until you're one way or another brought back up. All right. So hell in the New Testament is uh, pretty vivid. We're going to go over the basics about the terms they use. Hades, Gehenna, which is a term that led me down a deep hole. I know, because I'd never even heard the term. No, I, I've heard that term. It's a movie now, Gehenna. But anyway, as soon as I started searching that term, I realized very quickly it was a, I guess it's maybe a horror movie or something. I don't mm. know. Hades, <clears throat> Pyre, P-Y-R, and Tartaros. So those are the four terms. Pyre is very O-S. rarely. What? Tartaros? O-S? Yeah, O O S. Okay. Yeah. Tartaros. Yeah. O S. So the Greek word Greek words used for hell, Gehenna, Hades, Tartaros, and Pyre. Pyre is used only a few times. We'll go ahead and knock these out. Yeah. Please do. Um Tartaros. Tartaros. I don't know. I feel like I'm just slaughtering it. Whatever. It is generally used as a bottomless pit form of punishment and it's generally reserved for fallen angels and Satan. It's like a, an eternal falling. They're just stuck. It's also used in how, Greek mythology. Yes. Yeah. How interesting. So this comes all of this yep. understanding how this is extrapolated because Christianity was brought to the Greeks in the new Testament. It left Jerusalem and Christ said to spread it around the world. And the, the 12 apostles, they went, into different areas of the world and spread it amongst other religions and pagan religions. And those terms were used by the people that were writing at the time. So right. it's just saying, oh, they're talking about Greek Hades. That's not a fair assumption. No, That's the yeah. word they used right. for the underworld. So it's you can't just say they just borrowed it from the Greek. No, that's just like the Greek term for hell. Like if you were there in that day, it's like that's they, what someone would it's call like it. They, yeah, they right? were actively translating it for the people themselves. that were reading. And if yeah. you're reading it for the Greeks around you that are trying yeah. to understand where you go, then you use the word Hades because that's where when you go. That's what they understand. Right, yeah. So, I you know, see. you could unfairly just say, well, they just borrowed Hades from the Greek. or, But that's a very simplified Right. Perspective. And you can also say it's just another word for hell. And that is also a simplified perspective. Right. And so studying what they say and what they mean when they say it and the cultural ideas behind it are important. All right. So the fallen angels, Satan, I think also false prophets are tossed in there. I can't remember, but it is the worst of the punishment. Yeah, but that's not it's Tar- it's Tartaros is Tartaros and it's an eternal bottomless pit, but it's also not eternal in the sense that God will never take them out of it because God will take them out of it and punish them in a lake of fire farther on down in the Bible. You'll see. Mm. But that is where they are currently supposedly, right? And it sort of in my mind sounds like the Titans. Yeah, the fallen angel thing. Yeah. 
yeah, trapped yeah. below Mount Olympus, is it? I don't know where Tartarus no, is so, in Greek mythology, but uh, I, don't know. I had the same thought. Like immediately, I was like, Mo- Tartarus. Most, most of the Titans, Titans were yeah. killed, okay. and they just ceased to exist mm-hmm. after that. But the angels, uh, the ha- they rose up. There was one Titan in particular, Kronos. Like the Titans, in my opinion. Yeah. There there was one Titan in particular, Kronos. He got yeah. put into Tartarus. Yeah, that's where I see the connection. Yeah. All right, so if we move on uh, a little bit farther. I wonder why they changed it to Tartarus. I mean, what, in, in their, why'd they change Tartarus to Tartarus? Oh. Or if, well, I guess Tartarus might be an existing word for them already. I don't know, because they didn't change Hades, so it's just a little weird to me that they changed Tartarus. I don't know. I don't. I didn't know the word before I started searching, so I couldn't. Oh, really? Yeah, I did not know that. Do word. you not know much about Greek mythology? Not a whole lot. I can't say that I know a whole lot. I fell, I just, I fell into a hole about that probably four <laughs> or five years ago. Um, this article that I was reading talks about the Old Testament hell and it says, and I'm still digging through all of this stuff. There may be false statements by people. I'm still researching because I fell into this two days ago. You can see why it's taking me time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because this is a little bit interesting. You have to do a lot of like tracking and checking. And going back and then checking scripture itself and then check, and then you're trying to research. like, I don't speak Hebrew. I got to still yeah. have faith that I'm trusting what they're saying. Like, it's a little bit tricky. But anyway, so they say, and I believe this part is accurate because they use the word shio, but see the word hell doesn't exist anywhere in the Old Testament, right? Right. But because they used a different language in a different culture, it's understandable. Okay, does their afterlife relate the same way? That's what cons- needs to be mm-hmm. consistent, not the word, because the word didn't exist because it was Hebrew. Okay, so we were going over the we were going over the different topics used in the New Testament, and we talked about. Hades, or we talked about, I'm sorry, but Tartaros and Pyre is an eternal fire, but it's used very little, only a few times. But Gehenna and Hades is used more than any other. Probably, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I want to say there was about 50 to 65 times for each of them, right? And the rest were fewer, much fewer. <clears throat> and so Gehenna comes about later as a translation from Hebrew and Aramaic phrases and it refers to a place, a physical place on earth near Jerusalem, okay? Now, this is all going to be so weird because we just talked about self-sacrifice that recently. might have been where I've heard it from. So Gehenna is a valley next to Jerusalem. Now, when God had given a specific... See, the Israelites were viewed in the Bible as, as God's chosen people. He revealed himself to them through the line of Abraham. That is how he entered the world. But Well, I mean, he entered the world through Adam and Eve. That's not really a fair, that's right. a mischaracterization, actually. But his line of chosen people started with Abraham. Okay. Anyway, that's getting a little off topic. But they had a specific place in God's plan, the Israelites, right? And that's where, that's where Moses came from. It's a direct lineage to Jesus. It's all part of it. But... In the place that he put them was Israel. That was the chosen land for them, mm. the promised land. Okay? When they came to inherit that land, they turned from him, and they endured punishment because of it. 
okay? And one of the things they did was they turned to outside gods and idols. And they started to worship, in particular, they started to worship Baal. Moloch Baal. And Moloch, yeah. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. Whoa. And they, in turn, sacrificed their own children to them. What? Yes. They built incinerators that they burned their children in. I remember where I've heard this term. Okay. And they did it in the Valley of Gehenna. Mm. Okay. I was researching Ammonite gods. So this term was co-opted in the New Testament because the Old Testament Israelites, somewhere, there's about 400 years or so in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? And a lot happened. (laughs) Like the Romans defeated the Israelites and took over their country. Okay, and a lot of that historical context exists, but there's no scripture from that time. All right, so by the time that we get to the New Testament age, the term Gehenna and how it is used is still under debate, okay? Because it could be allegorically used because not only before when they were offering their own children up for sacrifice and burning their bodies in incinerators to a pagan god, in the land that the God had given them. Not only were they doing that, but after that practice died down, the Valley of Gehenna became, they turned those incinerators into trash incinerators and they hauled their refuse from the city out to Gehenna and it was an eternal burning fire. And it's a fire that never went out. They literally just fed their trash into it all the time. Wow. And it's a fire that always burned and stank and rotted and worms and death. Right. It was just a place you did not want to go. And so this they called it a desecrated valley in South Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. And so is it referring to an eternal fiery abyss of punishment where the body and soul are judged, right? Gehenna, is it a physical place? Right. Right, which it actually is. Gehenna is a, a noun. It's derived from the Hebrew phrase, I'm going to really slaughter this one, Gehinwim, maybe, because there are no vowels in that. Oh, my God. Hebrew is so hard. G-Y-H-N-W-M. Gehinwim, maybe. Anyway, Valley of Hinnom, Okay. The Valley of Hinnom was a ravine along the southern... I'm reading directly, by the way, if you can't tell. The Valley of Hinnom was a ravine along the southern slope of Jerusalem. And in old times, it was used in place for offering sacrifices to foreign gods, eventually used to burn refuse. When the Jews discuss punishment in the afterlife, they employ this image as a smoldering waste dump. Mm. Okay? So now you get sort of the imagery behind when somebody talks about Gehenna in the New Testament. Also, we have Hades. It's generally viewed as an underground prison to which Christ holds the key in the New Testament. Uh, A temporary place that will give up its dead at the general resurrection. This is, okay, we've reached another impetus, another fork in the road where I have to decide which way I'm going to go, right? Now, generally... My past belief has brought me down the road of 
Hell is an eternal place. You don't come out of it. You go into it. That's it. You either go to heaven or you go to hell, right? What we're going to run into in a little while, is that biblical? Or do you go to a place like Hades or Sheol where God promised a resurrection, okay? God promised you eternal life if you are a believer, right? The question is, did he promise you eternal suffering and a life, an eternal life, but a life of suffering? Right. Okay. There is a, I will call it sect for lack of a better word, a sect of Christianity that believes in annihilationism. And what that means is, yes, God's going to punish you by fire and then you're gone. Mm. He will incinerate you and annihilate your existence. Okay. That's interesting. And I'm going to use this term a little bit loosely. So any listeners, please don't judge me too much. <laughs> it is a fairly biblical perspective. Really? Okay. Yes. It, meaning a lot. Like, biblical always means in alignment with scripture. Yeah. That's exactly what I was about to say. Hades. Is the view of Hades more similar in the New Testament to Sheol, right? Is there a resurrection from Sheol into a new life with Christ? He claims he's going to return, okay? And he claims he's paid for the sins of those that were in Sheol. And in some views, we may, I don't remember if it's in this article, we may get to that. In some views, the good side of Sheol is called paradise. Okay? <coughs> and so that would mean that you're in a good waiting place, but the coming of Christ, which is foretold in the prophecy of Revelation, when it's interpreted by modern Christians, it's meant to mean that Christ is going to come back and rule the earth for a thousand years. And it generally means that in the generally accepted worldview, it would be after this is a whole. We went over exegesis and hermeneutics. Yeah. The study of the end times is called eschatology. Eschatology is this, it's the study of the end times. Okay. Could you say it again? Sorry. Eschatology. Eschatology. Yeah. Eschatology is the study of the end times and what scripture would say about it and what it means and how it relates to other scripture. You use known understanding of scripture to interpret the scripture you don't know. That's the only fair way in the perspective view of an inerrant book to do it. Right. Right. Anyway, so they believe that God's going to, or Christ is going to return, rule the earth for a thousand years after what's called the tribulation period. The tribulation period is where you hear a lot of people talk about antichrist. That's where that comes from because they believe that there's going to be a time of extreme human suffering that comes before Christ returns. Mm -hmm. That's in the book of Revelation as well. 
And there are a lot of signs and symbolic meanings in a lot of all this other stuff. And that's why it gets misinterpreted and people call other people antichrist and all this stuff. <laughs> right, right. Because it's so open-ended and and Jesus said no one knows the time or the day or the month or the year or whatever. And so nobody knows when it is and and that kind of thing. And But most Christians believe that when they die, they go to heaven directly or they go to hell directly and that's where they are forever. And then everybody else in the world may experience like the tribulation and then may experience Christ's return and then ruling over the earth at that time. And when Christ comes back, he's going to turn it into a paradise. It's going to be a no, it's going to be, they say, like the Bible says, heaven on earth. So it's just going to be without sin in a world without sin. It's like the Garden of Eden all over the planet. Mm. Okay, so. You, you said that and I was like, that's if it's going to be like the garden, won't that be a problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is like heaven on earth. Meaning, no, yeah. Meaning an eternal paradise and here's where we there's divergent views i'm not going to pull as much scripture out just because of time right now i don't even know where we are but the thing is does that mean you get resurrected out of shio and you spend time on christ's paradise on earth you see are are you in (laughs) there waiting or are you in heaven like what where are you going to go? Right. Uh, well, couldn't something like this be attributed to to there being different layers or levels of hell? Because isn't that a thing? Yeah. So there. Are, okay. So the Bible speaks about different levels of punishment. Doesn't? I don't know. I think that there are. Yes, I would say yes. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but it does speak of different levels of punishment, which probably to me means that there's different layers there. Right. Levels, however you want to put it. It doesn't, it's just semantics. Yeah, exactly. But but I I think that um, it definitely shows different levels of suffering, different levels of punishment. And I'm not sure, I'm still, as far as the agreement between Sheol and Hades in the New Testament, how that ties together. Because that's not really talked about much in the Old Testament. That's pretty wild too, honestly. So I would say that I don't know if I would go as far as to say there is a large contradiction or disagreement between the two, but the context between the two is definitely not portrayed the same. Yeah, definitely not. It is much more neutral. Is much more neutral in the Old Testament, and um, no, it is good to know. Like between Old Testament to New Testament, there was a whole war. And then you get to the Greeks who are, they they have not a revolution, but like a renaissance. That was, yeah, exactly the word I was the, about The Greeks went through a renaissance very early in their the civilization's age. So like the context between the two civilizations are massively different. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're watching the encounter between one culture trying to spearhead its way into another culture and what that does to literary context can be really difficult to discern. It can mean a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to jump to, to keep it moving in, um, in the gospels, what, what was hell like in the gospels. So in the gospel of Matthew, hell's mentioned seven times. He may be talking about Gehenna along with eight descriptive terms concerning fire. Out of all the Gospels, Matthew speaks of hell the most, 
And out of the entirety of the New Testament writings, Matthew contains the most content on hell, with Revelation falling in second. There are four Gospels, by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew 3.10, John the Baptist teaches that those who do not bear fruit will be cast into the fire. Okay. The point here is not merely there's always a fire burning in Gehenna, but that God burns the wicked with an unquenchable fire. In Matthew, it's written that way. So, okay, that was Matthew 8 through 15. So, I'm going to read that one. This is like a pretty descriptive version of hell. So, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those are like God's chosen. Yeah. So he was saying they'll be lifted up while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Real quick, we'll read the Lake of Fire verse. It's curious that the way that he approaches hell and the way he speaks is curious. I mean, I guess that it makes sense, but as if it's a place unbeknownst to him. Almost, yeah. What do you mean, unbeknownst to him? Like, he wouldn't know, he doesn't know what it's like. Is that yeah. what you mean? Okay, so, <laughs> that it might lead to a bigger theological discussion, but, okay, surely you've come across the concept of the, trin- the triune God, the Trinity. Yeah. Okay, so it's a complicated subject when it comes to, because see, God, the Father God, is known to be omniscient, omnipotent, yes, and all-powerful, right? All-knowing, everywhere, all the time. And the understanding the difference between that mortal son who is still God... Is a difficult one. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I think I may have said it a, a little weird. So, Jesus is akin to wh- what you could guess someone would be like if they understood everything an Eldritch Horror told them, and it didn't drive them mad. Right. Basically, yeah, having all, in, all in, cosmic in the, and world in the, truths. In the barest sense, yeah. it, it, there's an, a, a kinship there. No, and I think you're right. It just, it's curious to me, like, he has an understanding of it just by being him. Yeah. But the way he approaches telling people about it is just curious to me. Jesus is super fascinating to me because his he came to earth and his final, like, most important message, I mean, is, let me rephrase that, his most important message is him, okay? So take up your cross and follow him, suffer for him, 
and your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's his. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. That's what he summarized all of it down to. When you do those things, you will follow me properly. Right. And that was a message of love, of how real love exists. And yet righteous anger existed within him. Um. I don't know if you know the story about Jesus flipping the money changers tables at his temple. Oh yeah. I don't think I do. The money lender. When Jesus came to Jerusalem near his final days. It's a big thing that people use to go against like capital capitalism. Yeah. People reference it a lot. Mm. But there were, so when you go into the temple in Jerusalem, it's a hive of activity and where there is activity, there is commerce. And there were people there that were money changers. You travel as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and you came in with your local currency, and oh, you did right, that right. currency changed. And they were known swindlers. You had to change your money out because you needed to buy an animal for sacrifice because you're from far out or whatever. Anyway, my point is they had commercialized his temple. And that really angered him. And he flipped. I mean, this guy that, you know, it's just like, I'm not, this man I'm not glorifying around. just violence in general. And it's not like he beat a man to death. I'm, I'm not mischaracterizing. Just showed his an, discontent. Yeah, an act of aggression. For their, yeah. And it makes you go. There, There is righteous anger and there is... And in, in indignation um, for abuse, you know, and I just uh, I find him a fascinating character. He was he was also uh, hung up on a cross and nails through his hands right. and made to suffer in front of the crowd by a government that found him revolutionary. And I mean that in the strongest sense possible, like he was hung because the government was afraid and the and the Pharisees, the religious elite, were afraid that he was a threat, labeling himself as the coming Messiah and authority and right. son he, of God. He, he, he claimed he commanded people. Yeah, he or led. But see, see, the Messiah is a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's the Israelites should have been looking for someone to come save them. Because the, it was expected. They had just been overthrown by the Roman legions. And they were living under a form of oppression. Right, yeah, of course. Their Pharisees were... The religious elites were playing the Roman game. Yeah. Okay? And they wanted out. Wait, what do you mean? Which religious elites? The Pharisees are the high priests. Oh. Of, they, right? They're, they're the leaders. Yeah. Because the Jewish government is a is a state and religion together. Okay, yeah, I got. But you. when they were overthrown by the Romans, they became sort of the Church of the Jews in the Roman state of Israel. Anyway, they wanted the people, the everyday people. They wanted a savior. They wanted out, and there was a prophecy that they were going to be saved. And when Jesus came, they were like, "It's him," and people started to rally around him, and Jesus. 
wouldn't do a lot to dissuade the fact that they thought he was a physical savior to their country. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he let people get excited about this, but he told his apostles in secret. He said, I'm not the Messiah they want. I come to save everyone. Mm. He was going to let himself be framed as a political. This is how it all happened. He was going to let himself be framed as a political martyr so that he could die and fulfill the prophecy to forgive the sins of all people and save everyone. That was the whole goal. It was his end goal and he knew it. My man is Thanos played the end game. Wow. And so as he was getting beaten and he was getting whipped, it was all because the elites and the Roman government saw him as a tinderbox. He was this right. There was this a power frenzy, that could oppose. This frenzy was building in a real geopolitical way. Yeah. For a legitimate overthrow of a government, but he was, and the whole time he was going, he was doing what they, yeah, and wow, he was feeding this, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I understood. Y'all are probably mean, not interested but, uh, in all that, but I just, um, oh, you're, him, you're I'm quite s- wrong. I love discussions. Like I'm this. super interested in how he was a revolutionary figure, and when you understand the context of the day. And I mean, they had suffered for 400 years prior to the New Testament uh, of their own fault, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. After they left behind God's plan for them. Anyway, all that to say, there was lots of history in between, and the Jews were really suffering, and they were waiting for that revolutionary hero. And they thought Jesus was a literal, because because he was viewed as the heir to the throne of David, which was the greatest king of Israel. I see. And he was in his lineage, and he was fulfilling all of the prophecy coming in through the West Gate in in Jerusalem. Like, everything he did in his life was to fulfill prophecy. Because if he matched all of Because his coming was told all throughout the Old Testament. And once he came, if it all happened exactly that way, then he was going to be viewed as the Messiah, the Savior for Israel. And he knew that was going to set him up as a revolutionary mm-hmm. war hero in a way that he was going to inherit the kingdom of David. And that meant to him, the Pharisees, the religious elite, were not going to give up their power. They had seized and give it to him and be in in control of the nation of Israel. They were going to fight it to the death, which means they were going to put him to death, Mm -hmm. which is what they did. The, the, The Pharisees took him from a religious crime because he was saying that he was a Messiah in a Jewish religion, and they took him to the Romans and they said, because they were in charge. They are the police state. Mm-hmm. And he took them to the Romans and they said, they said, sir, sir, this man wants to start a revolution. And Rome said, not on our watch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's obviously a little more complicated than that, but I'm just saying like, it's just fascinating to me that he manipulated a geopolitical war into the way he using wanted using Hebrew scripture. It's just so in into the way yeah. he wanted. Exactly. It, and it it wasn't just Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, a conversation. My man played the role of Sherlock listen, Holmes. Yeah. He didn't improvise. 
All right, Matthew 27. I'm, this is so off topic, but it, it's on topic. But I think topic is out the window at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're just doing whatever now. <laughs> but I'm going to, okay. Okay, John 18, 28 through 38. <clears throat> and this is where, okay, so have you ever heard the term or the name Pontius Pilate? I don't think so. Pontius. Pontius Pilate. He is the Roman governor of Israel at the time. And he's in charge. He's the big Roman in charge. Okay. And he was sent there. I can't remember who by, but he was sent there because the guy that was there before him did a crap job (laughs) at keeping stuff from becoming an issue for Rome. And so he was replaced with Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is, I got to keep the peace because if I don't keep the peace, my boss gets pretty mad and then punishes people. Yeah. And so he has to keep no rebellion, no nothing like that. He's got to keep it down. And um, Jesus is brought before him. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elites are like, uh, this is what he's doing. We've arrested him. They arrested him on their own, and they brought him to him. And when he got to him, he was like, hey, <clears throat> did you do this? I'm going to read this scripture to you in John. And this is the interaction so you got to remember, you, I've given you the backstory. Yep. He knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going on. Pilate's kind of the dumb guy in the room. He doesn't really actually know what's going on. He just knows he's been brought. This guy who says brewing a rebellion, right? So he says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled as Jews going into the Roman headquarters. They wouldn't go in, so they wouldn't be unclean. But could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, he would not have delivered him over to you. They just said, If he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So it's against their, it's against their religion. So they're going to use a proxy to do it. However, mm-hmm. if we deliver him. Hey, but, but, but if you kill him now, <laughs> that's not on us, right? All right. Then the Jews say to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So what he's saying is, are you the revolutionary? I hear you are. Right. Are you fomenting a rebellion? Are you claiming the throne of Israel in a Roman state? Okay. So he said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. Or would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So he told the truth to the Roman 
governor. He, he just straight up, hey. Whoa. So he said, Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is one mm. of my biggest, I, I don't want this to be misconstrued. I believe the Bible is holy, and I believe it's exactly written the way it's supposed to be written. I want to know what Jesus said. They do not say. Oh. Pilate said, what is truth? And the next verse is, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. They, they don't write what Jesus said, if Jesus even answered him. Right. I wish. Anyway, nah. Wow, dude. No, it's very simple. Knowing Jesus, the man just smiled. Yeah. But anyway, I, I love Jesus. When I listen to him interact with people, he's about to be put wow. to death, and he's like, I was born for this purpose. I've come into this world. Everyone who is truth listens to my voice. This is a philosophical discussion. And he's, Pilate says, what is truth? And we get no answer from Jesus right there. Anyway. Jesus beautiful. just smiled. Oh, my God. So he's on trial. And that's what he says. And he says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And in other gospels, he is more clearly defined <clears throat> as a very dark individual, a bad man that you don't want out. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. But they let him out instead. Anyway, that interaction with Pilate, I just love the fact that as a revolutionary, he's standing in there and he's like, I just came here to tell the truth. And everyone who listens to me listens to truth. <laughs> All, all the while, he's, he's just answering him, and all the while, he knows, I'm going to go hang on the cross. But, yeah. I'm going to go hang on it. All I can think about is that man, like, Pilate, just, what is the truth? And Jesus give, like, a warm, knowing smile. Well, think about this for a second. And this is a little more moral than anything else. Jesus didn't just die for humanity he didn't die in a communal way he died for every individual everywhere for all time on an individual level and that's how it ended up reaching me that's how christianity after i had dug and i thought i believed it like i thought knowing it i thought knowing it knowing the words understanding what was written i thought that was what being a christian was and so my search for knowledge, my sort of digging, led me to this place. And it led me to a place where I thought, this is it. This, so he's hanging on the cross. I have a better understanding of who he is. And he's, when his entire life, sinless, the only human to never be stained by sin. He's the least deserving of punishment ever to exist in humanity. Within him is God. Within him is whole goodness. 
And we as humans, because we're so stupid, <laughs> we beat him because that's who we are. Yeah. We <clears throat> slaughter the one thing. And he knew we would do it. He used our sin to put himself there. He used our darkness and our hate for each other to get himself nailed to wooden beams. And the, all he ever had to do, he was the creator of the universe, all he ever had to do was ignore let us eat each other alive. Okay? But instead, he would never have to suffer. The God of the creating the God who created the universe would never have to endure pain, temptation, the temptation of sin, um suffering, physical agony, but he went through every single one of those earthly torments. And he did it because he loved me. And he thought I was worth saving. And I don't know where the point in that search for me, it became personal. But, you know, whenever it left from being this arbitrary novel of a story to me, to recognizing the darkness within me and how somehow he saw a light and a reason to have me around in spite of how stained I was, it was, it, that was the moment, the transforming moment when I said, if you did that, then I'll follow. Like wherever, like it wasn't a hard jump at that point. That's when I said, okay. Once it became clear to the right. fact that it, it wasn't, I'm saving a race it was, I'm saving this person yeah, and this no, person. No, can't. Like, he did it on such a personal level. There was this preacher I heard one time, and he said, we just talked about Barabbas, right? And how Barabbas was this criminal. And they have this custom where you can release one criminal in to forgive the crime of another. Oh, yeah. Basically, he was saying, we can set Barabbas free and I'll imprison this guy if you want. Yeah. I'll imprison him. and that, But that means you got to let Barabbas go on the you street. Know, it's, it's a tit for tat yeah. thing. <clears throat> I heard this preacher one time. Barabbas is constantly looked at in Christianity like, I can't believe they did that. They gave up the son of God for this evil person, right? He was preaching on... Barabbas and the recognition hits you and he goes all of you are yelling at Barabbas 
And he said, I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. You're not Christ in the story. Mm -hmm. You're not the people in the crowd. You are the condemned who was let go. You're the sinner and the robber and the... You don't deserve to be free. There is nothing clean. But Jesus said, do what you will. And it was that moment I realized it's an individual forgiveness. He takes every stain on you and washes it away. And, and if, if you accept that, if you are open to him, to following him, then those two come together at the same time. They're washed away and you're willing to follow. Anyway. Whoa. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> Makes sense to me. It gave me, it gave me way more insight into, uh, well, my idea of Jesus, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. This is totally <sighs> nothing to d- But this is the problem that I run into. The interconnectedness of all the continuity of idea. Yeah. 65,000 hyperlinks. Hard, hard like, not to find a connection. I can't understand heaven and hell without understanding Christ's sacrifice. Well, yeah, I mean, like like I said, you explaining it uh, gave me a lot more insight as to, well, just understanding Jesus. Not necessarily who I thought he was exactly, but Think- I can see why it's necessary to have to explain all this because it really does grant a lot more of an understanding. I think that our, it, it's just like altruism. Like, you don't always realize you're in the shallow end. Yeah, exactly. Right? You just look around and you see water. Like you feel like you understand yeah. it. You're surrounded by things you've heard, things you think you know, things you, and even now it's not like I feel confident in the historical veracity of everything that I'm talking about. Right. Right? It's not like the Greek or Hebrew understanding of shoal or like it's a constantly evolving process. And there is not going to be an answer today. Right. It wasn't this, when I started going down the road, I, I couldn't go any other direction. Yeah. It wasn't like I was going to be like, okay, let me put down Sheol and let me go pick up like um, reincarnation. reincarnation right because now. Because it's all just so open. Because <clears throat> that, that, that would like, be an opinion. Yeah. But like, I, and there's nothing wrong with that opinion. But like, I had such a, um, a large challenge to my current belief system uh, and this doesn't right. this doesn't in any way detract away from the way I feel about Jesus Christ and it doesn't detract away from the overall message of the Bible I only meant that this affects my life <clears throat> the answers here are eternal ones and my fundamental understanding of those eternal ones now I want to be official and say I have not changed my mind on my idea of heaven and hell because I feel like this grants further, because of the time limitation I've run up against in the last two days only to deal with this issue. But it is not one that I'm dropping because that's definitely not in my nature. I'm going to obsess. <laughs> and I still am. But I had to catch you guys up to sort of where I was uh, at. Sheol is like... Hades. 
But it's a place of rest, you said? It's a place for the undead. Some people say, and these are all different trains of thought, okay? And all of these have different biblical reasonings. Some people think it's a place of eternal sleep. There is no consciousness there. But that doesn't seem in my conscious, consistent stream of thought to make sense. Lazarus spoke from there, okay? That was another thing I wanted to talk about. So the rich man was speaking to Abraham and Lazarus, effectively across a chasm. Mm -hmm. One that can't be crossed, Mm -hmm. but can be spoken across. Yes. Abraham. Just, not just a dude, but just a dude. A human? Yeah. Abraham? Yeah. Yeah. Like, one of God's chosen, but still just... He's just as mortal as everyone else. Sure. But I don't think that was an attribute to Abraham or Lazarus. I think that was an attribute to the place. What was? Like, they, they can be called out to. From one side of shield, you know what I'm saying? Wait, hold on. There, oh, that's right. That was in shield. Remember, they were both a good place and a bad place. I forgot about that. It was not like they went to heaven. That was my whole thing behind this. Is that's confusing? Okay, okay. Because if they were in Old Testament, in fact, if you think about the definition of okay, how do you get to heaven right now? Let's just say your standard response from a Christian today is going to be you're saved. You're saved through Jesus Christ. You accept that. That's a generic simplified way of putting it there are a lot of different beliefs outside of that but anyway so you then you go to heaven after you die all of that has been possible since when what's the point in time since that became possible since going to heaven became possible yes a a, a mortal man was saved at the point that jesus died oh okay i follow yes so in the timeline of events when jesus died he saved all of those who believe. Okay? Now, what happens before Jesus died? Say a guy dies. Jesus died on Friday. Say a dude died on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that I got you. What happened to him? Okay? There are legitimate questions here. Mm. That That's not a heretical question in no, any sense. Yeah. There are legitimate questions. How did someone who, before Christ, when they died... What happened? Now, is it unfair if everyone who died before Christ went to hell? Humans would like to say yes. Okay? In my opinion, the truth of the matter is we're all unrighteous. Okay? When I say we get what we deserve, meaning I feel like as a broken human being, there is no way to spend time with God outside of being cleansed if god never forgave anyone and threw us into the dustbin as drastic as that sounds not and i don't mean that in a simplified way like a oh an abandoned experiment i'm just saying no yeah because god doesn't make mistakes he gave us free will we made the mistake we make the mistakes every day all right so anyway did he leave no option for anyone before christ And there are Old Testament answers to this. God set up Jewish law 
lots and lots of laws. Those were God's ideas. And the reason I believe God set them up is so that we could learn how imperfect we were. They couldn't keep them. It's near impossible. And even it's, perfection is impossible. And I think that was the whole point of the Jewish law and the failure of the Jewish law. It wasn't that God set up a failing law. It's God saying, you're not even close. Yeah, you're not, you're not anywhere close to pure righteousness because you can't even reach the earthly righteousness that I'm setting up <laughs> for you. I think that was the whole purpose, right? And to need that law to be fulfilled by someone perfect, i.e. Christ. But I forgot where we were before this. We were talking about uh, Lazarus. and I was talking about the, Old Testament yeah. death, right? People dying before yeah, yeah, yeah. Christ came. This is... I can't speak to the credibility of this, but it sort of relates. My friend, my roommate, Cody, his best friend, Liam, and I, I asked him, I didn't ask, we talked about it shortly when I met him. Anyway, Liam, he supposedly, I believe him, right? A near-death experience. No, he died. He killed himself and came back. And he said... That's called a near-death experience. It is. When you, when you have clinical death in some yeah. way and you come back, they just still call it a near-death experience. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, near-death experiences clinically either brain, all brain functions or all cardiac functions. Right, and I don't know the, the exact details like that. But he said it was the most painful thing ever, and he's not going to do it again. <laughs> he's not going to die again or coming back? <laughs> Which one's the painful part? <laughs> Dying, not so bad. Coming back, the worst thing uh, you'll ever experience. That's kind of an important detail. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I took that as I'm not going to kill myself. Again, but I think he was probably talking about that part. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a stipulation I thought of. <laughs> you imagine <laughs> Jesus waking up after three days. <laughs> Just aching like yowls and agony. <laughs> like the dying like on the cross, nothing. Nothing right. compared to waking up. Uh but that did make me wonder like what it would be like to come back from it. Like, I mean, it makes sense that it's painful, right? But like still why? It all depends <laughs> on the way you go, I think. I mean, obviously you can you can go while you're completely unconscious and experience nothing. No, I mean, I mean, coming back. Oh. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of what I mean. Like when Liam came back, where did the pain come from? Right? I don't know. It's just weird to me. Yeah, more like a, your brain exploding in in sensation again. Well, yeah, right. right? I guess just everything is everything is coming back, so you're feeling it all. Chemical right? dump or something. nothing to everything. It, so. It's possible. It's one of those like because uh, like even when you're asleep, your your brain is. It has all these senses, sense of touch, sense of smell. It's, they, they still act. So brain function ceasing means the brain normalizes mm. and says, this is uh, my right, this like, is my base. Well, ceasing, well, I think the term ceasing would mean zero well, yeah. electrical activity. But even then, that's... It, it, it lowers the baseline. It resets to a baseline yeah. zero. So like all the things... And then everything coming back, everything would go into overdrive. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I could see a lot of, I can imagine a lot of different strange experiences or sensations as this sort of brain 
comes back alive, right? It's like a power cycle yeah, yeah, yeah. on a laptop. Yeah, except it's like misfiring everywhere because yeah. we're organic. We're, we're synaptic. We're not, our circuits aren't nearly as neat and tidy. You could stimulate electrical activity with some outside source and you could just make people do stuff and feel stuff. Like, yeah, it's not. It's pretty wacky. Yeah. You know, one thing we didn't cover, by the way, I'll just close mine out real quick. I, I didn't go over every term in the Bible, every verse in the Bible that has to do with hell because it would just take forever. And I didn't even go over every perspective that hell could be viewed biblically. But I just wanted to open up the door and say, this is the road I went down. This is the road that I'm just looking at. I'm still going down. And there's no, I'm not, I'm, I haven't come down hard yet. And I'm not going to say that I am today. And even though the goal of this podcast was to come down somewhere and land on an answer, I feel like I've explained why enough that I can't today. Yeah, sometimes, you know, subject matter is just too large to come to a conclusion with in in a week. Especially if it's something you care about deeply. Yeah. And and I, I will do like I've always done. I will continue with my current belief until it is significantly challenged enough that warrants, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I am not, there is some, I have to acknowledge confirmation bias at this point. Mm-hmm. I have to acknowledge that my life revolves around a certain way of believing and that disagreeing with that believing means, that's why I brought that up. Because, not because I want you to know my personal life, but because I want you to know I recognize where bias can exist. And so all of that is out in the open. And I think probably somewhere down the road, something is going to come up again that comes back to this at some point. And maybe it can be more concrete then. Who knows? Mm. And I don't want to sound like I'm kicking the can down the road is what I'm trying to say. Oh, I don't think anyone will think so. Nah, it's, yeah. (laughs) I try to be as honest (laughs) and as clear. Here's the thing. As long as I tell the truth. Yeah, you're being candid, yeah. I would say. As long as I tell the truth, I don't have to remember lies. This is just yeah. going to be, from now on, I can be consistent all the way through and hopefully in the editing not omit something that matters. But there's definitely going to be some slicing on this one. <laughs> yeah. Some yeah. serious cuttage. <laughs> so, okay. There, there are two, I don't know, like forms of, Afterlife or after death. Well, I guess it would be afterlife. What happens after you die that I want to bring up. One of them being the non-existence, the oblivion idea. Yeah. Now, when I was looking this up, I'll, anytime there is something that could be philosophical, I'll always look up Alan Watts. I don't agree with everything he says, but there's a lot of stuff that he talks about that I really like the way he looks at things. And he compares the thought of oblivion after life as something akin to like a child asking a parent who they would be if that parent had had another lover instead of the one they do have. Or who would that individual be if their parent was someone else? It's one of those... Because it lines up with those divergent choices. Like, what if the past was different? Do I exist? Do I 
like, do I cease to exist? Does that even matter now? Because it's not an answer that you can have. But he explains it in a way where it's it's an answer that you can never have. Didn't he call it, I don't remember his words exactly, but like the most interesting question. The most creative. Yeah, something yeah. like that. He was, which is so funny, the question about nothing could be like the most, yeah, interesting. Because there's unlimited answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I think I think is that, he the one that tied it akin to unconscious sleep? Yeah, yeah. Because he said that it's like it, an uh, like if it's an unconscious sleep that you never wake up from, you never. Yeah, like when you go to bed at night, you never suffer from that existential threat that you think looms over right. you because you're not. Right. Th- there's nothing yeah. there for yeah. There's nothing. You're there. not there to yeah. experience it. Yeah. Do you suffer? when you con- unconsciously sleep and you're not present, you just wake up and it's the next day. But that was his point. There is yeah. no in between. There's no after there, there's no experience about. to suffer. Mm-hmm. And so that's a fair and logical wow. reason. Yeah. I think. And when I brought this up last week, I think I worded it poorly, but this is the thing that if I had to choose, I think this would be it. Because it is the least punishing to the most humans. I understood that a little more after, during research. Because I didn't, when you said it, I didn't, I don't think I fully swallowed that concept. And least punishing can be totally true because... Every religion that I have found and researched on had some form of punishment for either non-believers or sinners for the lack of a better word and that I'm not saying they don't deserve to be punished but I in existence of in itself is semi punishment mm-hmm. but I hate arguing for the oblivion stance because it's so Simple. Yeah. There, there is a very difficult to articulate need in humans for a deeper meaning. Yeah. It's part of what leads people to religion. And that's not an, that's an undeniable thing as far as like, not undeniable. It doesn't make God undeniable. I'm saying it makes, but it's it's an irresistible thing for humans to, Hum- humans to. naturally hate Occam Razor happenings everywhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's the reason that we come up with convoluted rules for simple problems. Oblivion meaning just like you die, control delete. Okay, yeah. Nothing I was is, just making sure. Yeah. I was just making sure, but yeah, it's just. Um, an erasure of consciousness yeah. and existence. Now, I don't think it's continuous for the oblivion, that idea to exist. I definitely don't think that's what happens. I, th- I mean, I think it's possible, obviously, because, like, who knows? But I don't think it's continuous for that to exist because there are so many other examples throughout 
everyday life that there there is something further like uh, doing research I ran into something called terminal lucidity and it's this happenstance that can ta- happen to it can happen to anyone I, I should state that first but it's seen more in dementia and uh, Alzheimer's and all these different brain disease or damage even people who have just had stroke strokes can have it. people come out of comas in the, in this state where they are suddenly conscious and aware and can articulate very well even if they haven't in 20 30 years and it's pretty crazy there was one woman specifically that I took a hold of and started researching her name is Anna Catherine I might mess this up Anna Katharina Emmer, uh, she was born in Germany. She died in 1922. Her doctor said that among the patients with the most severe disabilities, most severe mental disabilities who have ever lived in our institution, she had never learned to speak a single word. She had never even seen... Sorry. We have never seen that she had taken notice of her environment. That was the asylum's chaplain. Oh, that's like saying she was like disconnected from reality completely. She, yeah. Mm-hmm. For, she had to be fed. She had to be changed for a very long time. I can't recall correctly. It might've been since she was born, but I'm not entirely sure. The day she died, she became entirely lucid, calling the doctors by name. Whoa. Doctors that have been only taking care of her for weeks and then uh, one nurse that had been taking care of her for two years or something within half an hour she was singing she had been laying in that bed for something makes you wonder if she's been like trapped in her head for 50 like, years or whatever. It's like... Isn't that terrifying? Humans are so crazy. They're bizarre. No. That is really scary. It should be stated. Imagine being there. Like, like, uh, like I've been working here 10 years. She hasn't moved. And, <laughs> and then now like, she's singing. Yeah, and then like calling people by name. And you're like, your whole reality... Shifts. There's no way you like, can what? answer for that, totally. right? And uh, it should be noted... And almost, actually, I think every case that I saw of terminal lucidity ends with their death within a day or two, oh, if not yeah. sooner. Yeah. I, I don't remember. Did I watch Did you send a video on that or something? Uh, I, I learned something about that. Yeah. I, I linked one of the videos. Oh, okay. That I watched on it. Anyway, what's even weirder, and this was curious case this her specific case her mm-hmm. singing at the end and everything that it was it itself was a special case among terminal yeah, lucidity i got you yeah stands out yeah but she specifically sang these words over and over where does the soul find its home its peace question mark peace peace heavenly peace and then she repeated that for like half an hour 
before she died. Was that a song or was she just saying it? No, it was a song. She was it It's Peace question mark? Yeah. Where's She's the asking a question. Where does the soul find its home? It's peace question mark. And then peace, heavenly peace, period. Whoa, dude. And that's just one of those like, how do you explain that without I, a soul? Like, I'm going to be totally... A soul is... It's one of those, like, the body has died and the soul is controlling the body at that point. See, I, I find myself struggling with, like, the verifi... What's the word there? This was me being strict on facts. Verifiability? I agree. The anecdotal nature... Yeah. Right? Of stories. Now, that's coming from someone who trusts 2,000 years worth of stories. <laughs> okay, so I wanted you to know that's I realized the hypocritical <laughs> nature of the... Um, What's he, this is being strict on facts. There were several things that I left out because I couldn't verify them. Because there were some notes on a few web pages that I weren't 100% sure on that mentioned that her parents had come by and that she recognized them. Oh, yeah. And then well, you the, couldn't find any... I couldn't find any proof of any it. Any record of that, yeah. And then there were a couple that had mentioned... Let's see, what were the other things? Her parents... So you got into that specific story pretty yes. well. Yeah. Oh, there were a couple journalism entries on newspapers that had mentioned her getting up from her bed and dancing around. I couldn't find any mention from that in the chaplain's journal or the doctor that took care of her his notes. I couldn't find anything about it. All right. I think I'm going to look into that. I've never heard of anything. Terminal like of the that. City. Yeah. I highly recommend it. <laughs> I so when I found her story, I I latched onto it, dove into it. I took a few glances at a couple of other stories, but I'm definitely going to read more on it cuz that's bizarre. And no one knows why. And there's so many stories in the world. It may not specifically have to do with what was what is it called? Uh Terminal. terminal lucidity yeah. that don't specifically maybe deal with that issue in particular, but like these unexplainable. There's definitely something fascinating about the mysteries of the universe that we all are drawn to. Heck, I'm sure it's like partly why this podcast came about. You know what I mean? It's just because yeah. like exploration of things that we do not know is, is what we fun. enjoy. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's cool. Okay, I think I'm at the end of the road for me. I don't know about you guys. Three hours in, I yeah. know y'all listeners, you um, you aren't gonna get every bit of this, and that's just partly because it's just gonna be too. Much. Um, and then we're gonna trim out some of our useless junk, mostly mine, because I went down tangent after tangent. But we live and learn. Yeah, we've been at this for hours now, and we're gonna wrap it up. And so, until next time. Thanks for listening. See ya.